Well, good morning, and thank you, Brian, for not singing happy birthday. That would have been tragic for him and everyone in the room. I don't know what a big deal is about my birthday. I'm halfway to 124, so I don't know why it's such a big deal. Yeah, I've done the math. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, please take them and turn to Acts chapter 2 today, beginning in verse uh, number 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, our Game Changer series today. We're talking about a game-changing church. And as you turn to that text, let me just give you a little bit of an update about the satellite. Today I had an opportunity to preach at the satellite. The 10 o'clock service there ends at 11. Uh, I was in the truck with a bona fide police officer who drove me back here so I could make it by time uh, that I did. And uh, we had a great time up there. You know, that's a great group of people who are making a, an incredible effort at investing in those in that area. And again, I remind you a church uh, where there are five churches in a five mile radius of, uh, of 55,000 people, something like that. Five churches there in that five mile radius. Here in this area, our first Julius area, there are 65 churches in a five mile radius. So it's a very, very big difference in, tense, in the sense of uh, how churched it is. But they're doing a phenomenal job. We're looking forward to Easter and reaching even more for Christ. But keep praying for the North Campus. And then while you do that, also pray for the First Eulis Campus because we are in the middle of some very exciting conversations and, and some, a lot of prayers going into, a lot of decision-making going into, getting us to the place where we can make some presentation to uh, you, the congregation, in the weeks uh, ahead. And uh, so it's a really great opportunity for us to position ourselves and to ask the question, how can we be the very best we can be uh, for five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road to be the lighthouse that this very diverse community needs for the gospel of Jesus Christ? What can we do? What resources has God given us? What must we do for these days ahead? And these are exciting questions to be asking. They're forward-thinking questions. They're questions about the future and about being family-friendly and about walking by faith. So just stay with us, pray with us, and as soon as we can give you some definitions of what we're thinking and praying about and get your feedback as a congregation, uh, we will be doing that. But be prayerful about that in the meantime. In the meantime, we've got the greater priority, the greater calling of, of living together, walking together, building a game-changing church. And the picture, the model we have is the New Testament church. Please stand with me as we read beginning in verse 42, even though I'll read verse 41 to uh, kind of set the scene. Last week, Pentecost and Peter's message, where 3,000 come to faith. And verse 41 says, So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. The amazing thing about this is that the apostles were walking with great discernment, and they still baptized 3,000 people that had just come to faith that day. Now, think about the logistical challenges of about 10 or 11 guys baptizing 3,000 people, number one. Think about the doctrinal questions they must have had. Are they really believers? Or are they really going to follow Christ wholeheartedly? Think about all that. And still, the evidence of the Spirit's power was such that they baptized them all on that day. Wow. So we pick it up after that. Then they themselves were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. 
Verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. My prayer today, please join me in that prayer. God, make us like them. Let's set the church back 2,000 years. Let's do that. It'll be a good place to be. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you, to make us like them in the sense of our devotion, in the sense of our uh, realization of the awe and the reverence and the respect and the fear we have for you. Make us like them in devotion. Help us to love like they loved. Father, all that we learned today, let us covenant together to put these in our lives as the church. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. So as the church began, and this is the beginning moments of the church. This is uh, the church without any buildings, the church without any plan, the church without any organization. There was no church growth conference they went to. There was no book on discipleship. There was none of that. Think about all the resources the church has today and still does not see that kind of thing happening uh, very often at all. They had just a simple faith in Christ, a resurrected Christ, a simple realization that the power of the Holy Spirit could do whatever needed to be done, and that's where they were. And as they began, they met. They met. They were together. They met together. The Bible says they were continually devoting themselves to meeting. Now, the setting of the New Testament church is obvious in that text. They met on Solomon's portico, or the porch of the temple. That was the one place they were familiar with in Jerusalem where many, many people could come in and meet together. And I would suppose that probably Peter and James and John probably preached from some raised platform like you find in the Old Testament book of Ezra and Nehemiah so that all the people could see them and hear them teach about Jesus. But then they also met day by day in homes. So homes that were no bigger probably than about the size of this porch on the stage were homes where, where people were gathering and there were thousands of them. So there must have been hundreds and hundreds of homes where they met and they were able to devote themselves continually to several priorities. Now, when you read the text, you'll see what those priorities are. It's evident. It's evident that the teaching of Jesus was so crystal clear that the great commandment, what we call the great commandment, and the Great Commission became the DNA of the New Testament church. The Great Commandment is, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And the second is likened to it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, upon that rests the, all the law and the prophets. Wow, big statement, mountain peak kind of statement. But also, Jesus said in his Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Another huge mountain peak of conversation and instruction. So you can see this being blended through everything that they do. It, these were the two peaks that kept them focused on Christ. About a year ago, uh, in February, uh, I was in Anchorage, Alaska, 
uh, in February to go preach to a group of pastors in Anchorage. And uh, so as I went, I'd never gone to Alaska before. Uh, obviously, anybody that goes to Alaska or even thinks about Alaska knows that it's cold, but not being very well equipped because I don't have that kind of a parka kind of thing, get up with moose skin boots and things like that in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. I just never use that kind of thing. So I don't have it. When I get there, I'm astounded by how bitterly cold it is. We landed about midnight and uh, came out of the airport to go get a rental vehicle. And uh, once we got outside, I realized I was deep in over my head, man. It was cold, zero degrees, the wind was blowing. Finally got our vehicle and got on the road. And uh, the first thing I encountered was not another vehicle, but an 800-pound moose walking down the main street of Anchorage, Alaska. And I thought, I am not in Dallas-Fort Worth anymore. Sun came up the next day, and it was a crystal clear day. We were driving down the highway, and I look off into the distance, and I see Mount Denali. So I know it is Mount McKinley, but the name has changed to Mount Denali. The original name, I believe. 20,000 feet in elevation. Got a picture here that looks a little bit like that. That is a picture of Mount Denali right there in the middle. On the left, Mount Forrester, 17,400 feet. And you cannot help but be impressed by these two mountain peaks in the distance. These peaks were 150 miles from Anchorage, Alaska, and you could still see them about like that. Wow, wow. Those two things were always a presence. You were always impressed by them. You couldn't forget about them as long as the sky was clear and the sun was shining. You could see those wherever you were because they were so immense. That's what the two teachings that we're talking about have the impact of having on these disciples. The great commandment, the great commission was, was in the blood, in the mind, in the heart of these disciples because this is what Jesus had taught them. So consequently, if you're trying to determine what were they doing that was so incredible, so awesome, that's what you're going to see in this text today. So let's just break it down like that. First of all, their priorities were first of all to love God. To love God because that's what Jesus says was the greatest thing. And they were continually devoting themselves to loving God. The Bible says while they were doing that, that the apostles' teaching was one of the things that they did. Now the apostles' teaching was not just some set of teachings. It's not a book called the apostles' teachings. But the apostles were the ones that had been with Jesus during his three years of earthly ministry. So everything Jesus taught them these apostles were teaching to the, the disciples or the followers at this point. And of course, the great commandment, great commission were two of those things. But, but many, many things were taught to them by the apostles. Essentially, they were loving God by learning. Did you know one of the greatest things you can do as a New Testament believer to love the Lord your God is to know him, to know his word, to know his uh, commandments, to know all that he says to us. And that's what they were doing. They were eager and hungry to love God by knowing God. Hey, by the way, the more you know God, the more you're going to want to know of him. The more you know God, the more you're gonna love him. Let me tell you, it's, it's, it's a love affair, spiritually speaking, with Almighty God as you, as you begin to know him. Jesus taught them about the Old Testament prophets. He taught them about the Father. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that God came to reveal the Father to them. So they learned the heart of the Father. He taught them about the Holy Spirit as they were about to experience the Holy Spirit. By this point, they are. What Jesus taught them was less moralistic and more relational than what we would otherwise 
understand. Today, we have books and books and books about morality, books and books and books of instruction about uh, keeping a list of do's and don'ts, but I assure you what Jesus taught them was far more relational than it was a list of do's and don'ts or just moralistic. There's far more to following Christ than just being moralistic. It was less outward and more inward. Jesus was more concerned about their hearts than anything else. And above all else, the New Testament disciples knew we have to keep this simple. People are coming out of Judaism. They're coming out of Greek mythology. They're coming out of uh, Canaanite type of polytheism. They're, they're coming out of all kinds of religions. We've got to keep this simple. And as Gentiles and as uh, Greeks and as Samaritans came to Christ, eventually by Acts chapter 15, they had to convene and they had to say, what do we teach these new believers and what do we not bother teaching them? Because they're coming to Christ and we need to know. In Acts chapter 15, verse 19, they come together and Peter and James and John and, and the apostles began to talk about that. Paul, there they have a council. And James stands up and says this, very revealing. James says, therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Just teach them some simple things. Teach them to, to avoid getting in trouble with the old religion that they've been involved with and maximize on loving God, knowing Jesus, following Jesus. That's the flavor of the apostles' teachings. That's the flavor of what they were doing. Wouldn't it be great if we could really focus well on loving Jesus well? Here's what I've learned. I've learned if I love Jesus well, then, then all of his commandments, all of the things he says to me in the Bible are very well received because I love him enough to want to follow him no matter what. But if I don't have a love affair with Jesus Christ, nothing in the Word really matters anymore. If I don't love Him, if I don't want to give my life to Him. Apostles' teaching. Secondly, fellowship. They were actually loving God by their fellowship with each other. And here's what I mean. Later on in the text, we find fellowship as, a, as an expression of love to each other. But here, they're fellowshipping with each other because of their kinship. They are now related to each other as children of God. And they weren't before. So their fellowship there emphasizes the kinship. They were family. They belonged to each other, and they belonged to God. And so they were treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When my wife and I um, began to have children, we had six children in all, and uh, we would take vacations. We were determined to show them parts of the United States of America, Grand Canyon, New York, just different places like that. And so we would take long trips with them which was kind of crazy if you've got six kids, you haven't thought it through, you've got, you know, they're under the age of 12, they're in the back seats and, and they, they fight and they quibble and they quarrel, they do all kinds of things that, that uh, I can say now that they're not in the seats right now, they're all adults now, they're gone to different places. But we would appeal to them, you don't have to love your brother, you don't have to love your sister, but, but treat them nicely because they're our children too. Can't tell you how many times we said that. You're all part of one family. We used to pray, Lord, just let them all get along by the time they're adults. And, and reality is they do now. They get along great now. I wish they'd done that 12 years before, you know. <laughs> but the fellowship we're seeing there are, are, are relationships that are forged by the kinship of being Christ followers. 
Mark my words, wherever you are in the world, if you encounter a worship service of people who love Jesus, you'll feel like brothers and sisters in Christ to those in Brazil, those in India, those in Dubai, those in Africa, wherever they are. There's a kinship, a camaraderie, and it's, it's almost felt, it's almost an emotional feel, but it's also a realization that we all worship Jesus Christ. It's powerful. And that's the kind of fellowship that was there, the realization that I have a new set of friends and because they follow God, they're gonna help me follow God. When I was in college, I had two kinds of friends, two sets of friends. When I first came to college, I wasn't a, a, a Christ follower with a whole heart. I'd come to Christ, I was a believer, but, but I was kind of living my own way. And then the Lord really got a hold of me and I started following Christ in a powerful way and I haven't turned away from that since, but I learned to have I learned that I had two sets of friends. I had the set of friends that were just friends' friends and they were kind of in it for themselves. They were just out to have fun and wanted me to be a part of it. And I, I was kind of the same way when I was them. But I had another set of friends who were Christ-following friends and they weren't just out to have a good time. They were out to help everyone follow Jesus. And so it was a different conversation. My friends who weren't Christ-followers never talked about right and wrong and doing the best thing and treating people right. And they never, they, never, they never encouraged me. They never built me up. They never reprimanded or reproved me at all. It was all about just the moment, the experience. But my Christ-following friends, they talked to me different. John, you can make that decision, but if you make it, here's what's gonna happen five years down the road. Or John, are you devoted to Christ fully? Do you really wanna follow him? I'll help you if so. Or they could see me down and they would be praying for me and they would help encourage me in some way. It was a whole different conversation because I was not related to that set of friends right there, but I was related spiritually to this other group of people and they took it seriously. Part of their worship of God was their devotion to other brothers and sisters in Christ. Did you know you can love God well by loving his children well? Love God well by loving the people that God loves do you remember Jesus' conversation with Peter after the resurrection, John 21, where he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. And then he asked again, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I just said it. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then a third time, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my lambs. Jesus never asked Peter, Peter, do you love James and John and Andrew? Do you love all these others that are following? He never asked that. He just said, do you love me? Because if you love me, you'll love those I love. Do you know why we want to love others? Because it's an act of worship to God. We love others because God loves them. Now, I'm going to make a survey in the room here. It's not a very spiritual survey, so. How many people in the room are dog lovers versus how many people in the room are cat lovers? Would you raise your hand if you're a dog lover, a confirmed dog lover, would you raise your hand? Wow. If we were voting on anything, I would want that right there. Right there. Uh, put your hand down. How many of you are cat lovers? Would you raise your hand? 14 or so, uh, something like that. <laughs> no, there are more than that. So we could talk about this all day, but we won't. And I remember when I got married to my precious wife, Kim, uh, I had been a dog lover all the days of my life. In fact, when I characterized my childhood, I characterized by what dog I had at the time. It's not about years, not, not what grade I was in, not about sports. What dog did I have? Was that when I had Rover or Duke or was that when I had Duchess? When was that? 
So that was my life, right? I married a wife who thought about that life in terms of cat years. And it um, wasn't long before I realized after we got married, we're gonna want a pet. What one will it be? Well, I was very devoted to dog life and uh, she was very devoted to cat life. But I heard this phrase somewhere, happy wife, happy life. And I thought, you know, let's give it a shot. And so we began to have cats. Uh, so she got our first cat and I tolerated those for 10 years. Then I learned to love cats. Now I've said this before and I've also told guys who want to give me a hard time, I will meet you outside and we'll settle this together man to man, but I do love cats. Now the reason I love cats is not because of any redeeming value in them, but because my wife loves cats. Very simple. Some of you are converting right now, even as I speak. It's not hard to love cats because she loves them so much and I love her and it just works. When, when we talk about fellowship, when we talk about loving people, listen, it's not hard to love people because God loves them. Because God has committed to them. He's devoted to them. And, and we can love them even if they don't seem to be very lovable sometimes. They were loving God by fellowship. They were loving God by the breaking of bread. This is the breaking of bread that is more oriented towards the communion. They were remembering. They were remembering what Jesus had done. In fact, the New Testament commentaries basically state that every time uh, believers met for any kind of a meal, they would kind of turn it into a mini communion because every time they broke the bread to pass the bread, they would say, now, as we break this bed, remember Jesus' body was broken for you. And as we drink this cup, remember his blood was shed for you. Not the sense of formal communion, but the reality of remembering what Christ had done for them just a few years before was massive. We would all be better off if we remember distinctly that Jesus died on the cross because he loved us and paid for our sins because he cared to remove us from that bondage because he wanted us to walk in freedom, every day would be better for you if you remember that well. And they remembered it well. And the prayer, and they were praising God, praying and praising, asking, being thankful, worshiping and and that's one of the things that New Testament believers have always done well with exuberance, with encouragement, with passion, being able to say, God, we love you because of what you've done for us. And that's what they were doing. They were living life where their love for God was evident and they were continually devoting themselves to this. So let's pause and ask you the question, do you continually devote yourself to learning about what it means to follow Jesus? to loving the people he loves? Do you continually devote yourself to remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross by also praising and worshiping him and being thankful? If you wanna know why they experienced all, they experienced all in part because of these things. But not only were they loving God, they were loving people very intentionally. In fact, this passage bleeds into that very well in verse 43 and verse 44. Verse, notice what it says. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place. And all those who believed were together, had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So they were loving people. And there's this fascinating description of how this works. When you read this text, you see this little thing popping up. Wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And, and as I read that, and I read the, the context of what's being uh, communicated, Luke is basically saying, even God is loving the people by bringing them hope through signs and wonders. Here's what is hopeful about that. 
Not just that the signs and wonders were valuable in and of themselves, but Jesus had walked for three years demonstrating all kinds of wonders and signs. Jesus now has died, he's buried, risen again, and gone, is sent to be with the Father. And on the other side of Pentecost, now these same kinds of signs and wonders are still happening through the apostles this time. So God is bringing encouragement, bringing hope to them because Jesus said, that side of the grave, then greater works than these you shall do because I go to be with the Father. And now they're really happening. Jesus has died, but now is alive. Jesus is no longer doing those signs the way he was. Now you're doing them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then it was Jesus walking with you physically. Now it's the Holy Spirit walking with you spiritually. And wonders and signs are taking place. And so what's happening is God is loving this New Testament church well by demonstrating supernatural answered prayer, amazing provision. People were coming to faith and turning away from all kinds of bondage to follow Jesus well and the Father is loving everyone well. It's powerful. But not only that, the church loved people by meeting needs. They were together. They had all things in common. They began selling. They began sharing with all. I conclude this. Love does whatever it takes to care for people. That's what love does. Love does whatever it takes to care for people. And they were radically loved by God, so they were loving others. You know, sometimes people don't want to love others because they don't want to be risking an, an investment emotionally or investment time or money. I don't want to love others wholeheartedly because, I mean, they may turn on me. They may reject me. They may later on be ungrateful for that. So I'm very careful about how I love others. But I've learned this. I've learned when you come to Christ, you are fully accepted. You're fully provided for. You're fully loved in every sense of the word. You will never be rejected once you come to Christ. You will never be rejected once you give your life to God. You can take a risk about people rejecting you because God never will. And these New Testament believers were going, we'll just give ourselves and maybe anything we have to meet needs around us because we don't, we don't risk being rejected. Not really, not in the real sense of the word, but his God loves us unconditionally. And we're going to love people the way God loves us. In fact, later on, Paul actually said that to the church at Thessalonica. We love because he first loved us, John said. And then Paul said, you're taught of God to love one another. Wow. So here they are, taught of God to love one another, and the church loved people by meeting all kinds of needs. And they lived in community with each other, not in the sense of being in the same house, but they devoted themselves to meeting together under the primary focus of love. Hence, their life was unique, and it was unheard of. It was unheard of in Jerusalem in that day and time for people to gather together in homes and love each other. It was unheard of in the Roman world for people to gather and love each other. Unheard of in the Greek world for people to gather and be devoted to each other and love each other. In fact, when they came together to eat, historians tell us that their meals were often called love feast. Love feast. And what it means is we invite all those we love to come and break bread with us and remember the goodness of God in our lives. And we just want to fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we commonly follow him. When you read the New Testament, this community, I call it community, not in the sense of a uh, geographical community, not in the sense of a, of a 
of a city, but community in the sense of fellowship began to take on some qualities and characteristics. I've, I've written this down years ago as we walked through the book of Ephesians, and here's what, it, here's what that definition is, again, of community. Community is a shared life, so they were obviously sharing. The word fellowship means koinonia or, or have, have, have in common. They had a shared life based on truth. They spoke the truth and loved each other. It was based on the truth of Jesus. Availability, that is, I will be there for you no matter what. Vulnerability, that is, I have not arrived and neither have you. And so together we'll open up our lives and say we, we are just on the journey together. And then reliability. You can count on me to pray for you. You can count on me to be there for you. And if you have needs, you can count on me to help meet that need. That's what communion was to the New Testament church. And it's not surprising that the rest of the area was mesmerized what was going on among them. Later on, people wrote, uh, about this and said, well, that was just socialism, New Testament socialism, New Testament communism. And I laugh at that because in nowhere does it say that's a command. This is just love being lived out. That's what it is. I'd much rather the culture and their inadequacy to meet needs of human people to be able to look at the church at some point and say, hey, have you ever considered being a part of a church because they take care of their own. They love their own. They help take care of those that have needs. Have you ever thought about being a part of the church? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to be a part of a church like that, that had that quality that even outsiders would say, maybe you should go there because they do love well. Amen? Isn't that something good to dream for and to ask for and to trust God for? Because it's happened before, I say, Lord, do it again. I say, let's set the church about 2,000 years to this kind of picture, amen? So they were loving each other well. Kind of the family plus plan. We're not really biologically related, but we are forever related. Your family plus some. Because God has put us together. Then finally, you can't deny verse 47 is a great and fitting climax to everything that is being said about the church. And I call this that they had a priority to love connecting people to God. Get this, get this line right. It sounds awkward at first until you understand what I'm trying to say. Their commitment was to love God, to love people, and to love connecting people to God. Verse 47 says it so well. It says this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those mountain peaks I talked to you about a few moments ago, the great commandment to love God, love people, and the great commission to love the gospel and people so much that you take the gospel to them, that's what's happening here. Now there's a sense in which we would say, well, God is just moving people that way. You just mobilize people that way. I've heard stories of that in, in recent days even where someone's driving by and the Spirit of God compels them to come and stop and they hear a message, they give their life to Christ. Maybe that's happening in mass, but there's also no question that these disciples who were following the apostles' teaching and following the mountain peaks of what Jesus has said to them were also talking about going to people and sharing Christ with them. Think about Acts 1.8. And Acts 1.8 Jesus is ascending and giving the very last words. You shall receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost part of the earth. And as he's saying this, he's ascending into heaven. In fact, this is such a mesmerizing experience for the disciples that they're standing there and they're staring up into the sky and an angel has to come and say, why are you looking into the sky? The same Jesus that departed that way will come again the same way. Go do what he said. Go to Jerusalem and get in that upper room and, and pray and wait. You think they forgot that? Not on your life. Not on your life. They didn't forget the great commandment. They also did not forget the great commission. And so what's happening here is that these people never lost sight of their Acts 1-8 experience and they've reached out to all those around them and they're sharing Christ with any that would give them an opportunity to, to hear the message. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's still alive. He works through the power of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders still take place. Lives are still being changed. Jesus is alive. And what a message to share. That's what they shared. And that's why God was adding to their number those who were being saved because you can only be saved when you come to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. They were doing the word of God. They were sharing the word of God, the gospel. So how do we set the church back 2,000 years? How do we become a game-changing church? Well, there are signs of hope everywhere in our church. I love it. That we love God well. To love God well, love him with all your heart, love him passionately, love him and learn about him. The more you learn, the more you love. Love people. Even if you don't like them, love them. You don't have to like them to love them. My wife told me one time, I love you, but I don't like you. I thought that was a real moment. <laughs> you can love someone and not necessarily like them at the moment. Love them well, love them well. And then love, connecting people to God. Because when you love connecting people to God, you love seeing the process of them learning to love God for who he is and what he's done. And you see the process of how they learn to love people based on the fact that God has loved them. Man, that's powerful. Three questions. What are you doing to love those around you towards the gospel? What are you doing right now? To learn to love those around you towards the gospel, to, to build a relationship with them, to, to be able to, to say, we've been loved by God, we love others, we want to love you. How intentional are you in helping others know Christ? Have you have a plan? Do you have a plan? Do you have a way? Many of you know how to share the gospel, but the next step is, okay, how do I share the gospel, or when do I share the gospel, and with whom? Third question is, who's your one? Who's the one that you would say over the next few weeks, the most important thing that I have on my plate is building a relationship, thinking about how I'm going to have this conversation and telling that one person how powerful God is in your life, how easy it is to love, and how simple it is to put their faith and trust in Christ, and that you will help them and become their family as they do this. Man, that's powerful, and you can do this. You know, the New Testament church is always one generation away from extinction. You've heard that so many times. But never is it more true than it is now. We live in the most diverse community in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. One of the most diverse high schools in the nation is right next door to us. 75 languages are spoken in the homes. That's a primary language for the students in that school. All kinds of colors, all kinds of religious background. It's the equivalent of... Gentiles, Jews, Greeks, Samaritans, etc. It's the equivalent of that. And we're the same church, with the same power as they are, with the same faith in Jesus Christ. 
Our prayer is, Lord, do it again. Just do it again. Just do it again. Write the story of the book of Acts with our names inserted, with our church inserted. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. As we conclude this message, this, this uh, moment today, I, I want to ask you, have you given your life to Jesus to the place where you love him fully and it's so radically touched you that you're also loving people? Is it evident? Is it real? Because if, if you don't have a real relationship with him, you're missing the point that all these people in Acts 2 got. They got the point and they began walking with God. Don't worry about all the commandments. Don't worry about the list of do's and don't. Don't worry about all those things. Just be concerned about your relationship with Jesus Christ today. Because if you've never given your life to Christ, he stands and offers eternal life. He offers forgiveness of sin on the basis of his resurrection from the dead after being crucified for all of us. He's paid for sin and he can pay for yours and give you eternal life today. If that's never happened, it should happen today. In just a moment, I'm going to have a stand. Our counselors will be at the front and they'll be ready to talk to you. We will worship and we will praise God for all he's done for us, but we will also invite you to take steps of decision right now. Would you stand with me right now? And as you stand, we'll pray. Counselors, you're coming to the front. You're preparing. Father, in Jesus' name today, I wanna to thank you that what you did was so real, so vibrant, that it's still true today. Father, my prayer is that if one person in this room where are many people standing who has not given their lives to you as Lord and Savior, that you would compel them and encourage them, draw them to yourself right now. Let them make that life-changing decision. And then, Father, I pray that all of us would want to be more like the loving God, loving people, and loving, connecting people to you that the New Testament church was. Lord, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.